So for our message today, I wanted to come here to this beautiful spot, looking out over the awesome city of Adelaide, this place that we love and this place that we call home. And it's going to be really helpful to give us a really clear picture about some of the things that we'll unpack as we continue our journey through the book of Jonah. If you remember last week, we finished our time with Jonah standing on the beach, dripping wet, having been chucked up on the beach by the fish and uh, awaiting what was next, this new chapter in his life, having had this really, really profound and amazing experience with God. And so we read that Jonah then, in verse 3, ends up going to Nineveh, that God gives him the same instructions that he did at the start of the book to say, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them that they need to change their ways. And so this time, Jonah is obedient. Now we know a little bit about the size of Nineveh. We're told that it was a great city, that it was a massive city, an enormous city, and we're told that it took three days to walk from one side to the other. A lot of people have done a lot of research on that and would say that that probably means that the city was about 60 miles across, which is about 96 kilometres, which is pretty huge. Adelaide, if you think about Adelaide, if you travel from Selix Beach right down in the south all the way up to Elizabeth in the north, that's 90 kilometres. So that gives some pretty good perspective when we think about what Jonah faced as he entered into Nineveh. We're told in chapter 4 that there was between 150,000 and 600,000 people that lived there, and we'll dig into those numbers a little bit more next week. And as archaeologists have done some work around the ruins of Nineveh and what's left of it, they would say that there was up to 1,500 towers that circled around the city, each of which was potentially up to 200 feet tall, and that these walls were probably wide enough that you could ride three chariots across all the way down them. It's a really, really massive city that Jonah comes to. And that's why it's helpful for us to have the context here for Adelaide. Because imagine that Jonah turned up here. No megaphone, no microphone, no internet to be able to share his message with the people around him. Just needed to go into all of the public spaces and share this message that God had given to him. And so we can imagine that he might have headed into the city and uh, gone down Rundle Mall and shared with some people there. And then he might have headed uh, over to the beach, just headed over to Henley Beach and shared a little bit over there. And then he might have headed down south, down to Marion Shopping Centre perhaps, or down to Norlunga City Centre, and then headed out to the north, out to Elizabeth City Centre, and spent some time there as well, and just shared this message with the people around him. It's a pretty scary and crazy task when you think about the enormity of what Jonah ended up doing. Well, we know that this message that Jonah gave was that the Ninevites had 40 days to change their ways. And it's really interesting, and it's a good challenge for us about our perceptions on what God was up to with this, that God does give them 40 days to change their ways. That God doesn't say, I'm going to wipe you out because I'm sick and tired of you. God says, you need to change your ways or there's going to be consequences and you've got 40 days to be able to do that. Now, what's absolutely staggering is that these people do end up responding. They respond to the message, they fast and they put on uh, sackcloth, which is uh, these symbols of grieving, these symbols of saying, we're sorry for the way that we've been living and that we want to change our lives. These symbols of repentance. And repentance is understood as kind of heading in one direction and then turning around and heading in the opposite direction. But more profoundly than that, when we really think about the depth of repentance, it is about thinking about things in a different way, having God's thoughts and seeing things through God's eyes 
and then allowing our actions to follow through with that. And so don't miss how crazy this is. These are the Assyrians, remember, Israel's greatest enemy, a strong military power, one of the dominant military powers of their time. And because this little man comes into all of these public spaces and says this pretty simple message, they change their ways. That's really, really staggering when you think about it. But it's even more amazing than that. Because the words that we read, where they believed God's message or they trusted God's message, are actually exactly the same words that we find in the book of Exodus when we hear that the Israelites believed God's message or trusted God's message about being set free from slavery in Egypt. Just allow that to hit home for a minute. The words that are used here are the same words, saying that the Assyrians believed God in the same way that the Israelites believed God when they were told, you're going to go through the Red Sea and you're going to be set free from slavery. These people, these people, the Assyrians, believed and trusted God. That was a huge challenge for the people who would have read the book of Jonah originally, and it should be a huge challenge for us as well. Well, not only do the people end up responding, but we read as well in verses 7 to 9 that even the king ends up responding. And it's interesting to contrast Jonah's response and the king's response. If you remember, we've talked about Jonah, that he was given the instructions by God. And what did he do? He said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm out of here. And I'm heading in the opposite direction. But the king here steps down from his throne, removes his royal robes, issues a decree to everyone that they need to fast and pray, enters into the same mindset as the people that he leads and ends up saying, we need to turn from our violent ways. Again, don't let that miss what's being said here. It's so astounding. The king of this strong military power is saying, we need to stop acting the way that we are. We need to change the way that we're acting. It's amazing. Now, to put that in context, and again, that's why we're up here, imagine if that happened in Adelaide. Someone from a different country arrived here with this really simple message, people of Adelaide, it's time for you to change your ways and to start living the way that God wants you to. As we said, they come and they head over to the city down Rundle Mall, talk to some people there. They head over to the beach, over to Henley Beach, share with some people there. They go down south, they head out north, they go down the parade and spend some time talking to people. And imagine how it would feel if people groups of people, and then bigger groups of people, and then neighbourhoods, communities, suburbs, the whole city got to this place of saying, yes, we choose to trust in God's message. We choose to live the way that God wants us to. We're going to turn away from living selfish, self-centred lives, and we're going to focus on what it means to be able to live the way that God wants us to be able to live. But even more staggering than that, imagine if Stephen Marshall, our Premier, issued a decree to say this is the way that we need to live here in Adelaide. Now, up until a few months ago, I would have thought, oh, there's probably not much chance of that happening. No way that a Premier has the same amount of power as a King. But when we think about what we've been through over the last few months and the decisions that have been imposed on us because of the virus, it's pretty interesting to think about the idea of what if the government did declare an edict to say... People of Adelaide, you need to live the way that God created you to live. 
It's staggering, mind-blowing when you think about what that would have been like. Imagine how Nineveh would have reacted as all of this was going on. Well, as we get to verse 10 then, we read these amazing words. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Now, this might be a bit of a challenging verse for some of us to get our heads around. Does God change his mind? Is that something that we feel comfortable with? And in particular, as we think about our picture of what the God of the Old Testament is like, it challenges us a little bit about what God is really like. Do we see the God of the Old Testament as this harsh, vengeful, jealous God, angry God who just can't wait to wipe people out and looks to destroy people who won't live the way that he wants them to live? Or do we see God as this caring, compassionate, loving, forgiving God who desperately wants people to change so that they can live the way that he created them to live? I'd love you to just have a chat just for a quick moment or two. What's your image of the God of the Old Testament? What's the picture that you have of the God of the Old Testament? And would you say that God changes? Take a couple of moments just to share with the people that you're with, or if you're on your own, take a couple of minutes to jot some things down, and then we'll come back. Well, our understanding is that God's character never changes. That God is the same internally, yesterday, today, forever, throughout time. That God is love. That God is compassionate. That God is caring. That God is forgiving. That those things never change about God's character. But that God's actions do change. And that in some ways, God's actions are shaped, as we look through the biblical narrative, by the choices that we as humans end up making. Now, to dig into this a little bit further, it's helpful to think about what happens when a parent needs to discipline a child. So for us, over the years, there's been a few times where we've had to have some hard conversations with Josh and Rachel about some of the decisions that they're making or some of the behaviours that they're displaying. And we've had to say, if you continue to act the way that you are, if you continue to do these things, then there will be consequences for you in that. 
Now, is our desire in that to be people who are unchanging, who are always the same? Is our desire that we hope that they don't change so that we can follow through on our consequence and our punishment because we promise that's what we're going to do? Of course not. Our heart in having that conversation is that we really hope that they will change their ways. But a big part of that is because our motivation is always about love. We want what's best for them. And that's the same with God. God's heart is that he always wants what's best for us. And so we should understand that God's desire is never to follow through on these threats that he says or saying these are the consequences if you don't change your ways. God wants us to change and to live the way that he created us to live so that we can experience his best. I read this quote this week that I thought was really, really helpful. God threatens precisely in order that he may not have to perform his threatenings. God threatens precisely in order that he may not have to perform his threatenings. God doesn't want to follow through on these things, whether that's the Old Testament or whether that's today. But God also can't allow us to just continue to live outside of what's best for us. It's also helpful for us to recognize as we think about all of these questions about does God change or does God not change? Some of that is because we feel a little bit uncomfortable about whether that means that God's in control of everything. And our understanding is that God exists outside of time and so God knows everything from the beginning to the end that has happened and that's going to happen. But there's a difference between knowing what's going to happen and causing things to happen. And that's where we would say that God chooses to work with us For some unknown reason, he chooses to involve us in his plans and his purposes, and we can actually shape the direction that those things go. However, God always knows what the decisions are going to be because he exists outside of time. So, here we see that God doesn't end up following through with his threat, with his actions, but instead he's thrilled that that the Ninevites have changed their ways. He's so happy that they have chosen to live the way that he wanted them to live and that they've turned away from the way that they have been living. So for us, there's a couple of things for us to be able to reflect on as we think about how this applies to us today. First of all, it's good for us to be challenged about how much we believe that God is able to work. Where do we struggle to believe that God can work? I don't know about you, but as I think about the Ninevites and the idea that this group of people, the enemies of Israel, the most powerful nation on earth, were going to turn just because some guy walked into a few of their public spaces and said, guys, you need to change your ways, uh, that's pretty staggering to me. And it really does challenge me to say, what else do I find it hard to believe that God's got the capacity to be able to do? Which people do I struggle to believe that God can be at work in their lives? Which groups of people do I struggle to believe that God can be at work in their lives? As I think about our area over in the western suburbs here, what do I struggle with about what God is capable of doing? As I think about our city as a whole, what do I believe that God is capable of? Am I willing to allow my perspectives to be shifted? But the key thing for us really to reflect on is what it looks like for us to participate in that. And so the question I'm going to get you to reflect on is this. How am I responding to the things that God asks me to do? How am I responding to the things that God is asking me to do? And again, it's helpful to come back to this contrast of Jonah and the king. 
Jonah, who expresses disobedience, runs in the opposite direction, eventually gets around to seeing what God can do through his obedience. Compared to the king who's willing to step down off the throne, to take off his royal robes, and to be able to say, we need to live the way that God wants us to. I will step out in obedience. And think about what the king had to lose in this. I'm pretty sure that a bunch of his leaders and the generals and the people who were in significant positions within Nineveh would have said, uh, what on earth are you thinking? Stepping down, saying you're like allowing God to be the king. God's the one who's telling us how to do things now. He had a lot to lose. And yet he was willing to be obedient. And because of that, something really miraculous happened. So in my life, What are the things that God is challenging me to be obedient about? I want to encourage you to just take a couple of moments to be able to reflect on that. If you feel comfortable sharing that with each other, you can share some of the things where you feel like, and they may not be gigantic things like God's coming to tell you that you need to go and talk to everyone in Adelaide, but it could be something really simple about a behavior, a habit, a practice, a fear that you're not willing to face, something that God's calling you to step out into. What is it that God's challenging you to be obedient with? Take a couple of minutes to talk that through and then we'll come back and wrap up. Well, it is really staggering to think about what God can do in us and through us if we're simply willing to be obedient. My prayer for us as we head into this week is that we can continue to catch a vision for just how astoundingly incredible God is, for how amazingly loving God is, for the reality that God always wants to bring change into our lives, but it's always for the best. And for the reality that when we choose to just take those small steps of obedience, incredible things can happen. So let's pray, and then we'll begin to wrap things up. God, we're so grateful for this amazing city that we live in. We're so grateful for the safety that we have here in Adelaide. We're so grateful for this amazing place that we get to call home. For all that we have here, we want to say thank you. And we thank you for what we've been able to work through today. This amazing story of seeing a city transformed just because of the obedience of one person. 
Our prayer is that you would continue to help us to be obedient to the things that you want us to do in our lives, the things that you want us to do individually and the things that you want us to do collectively. Help us to understand what those things are and help us to have the courage to step out in obedience in those areas you call us to. But we also want to pray that you would continue to help us to see transformation happen in the community around us, in the neighbourhoods around us, in the western suburbs and in our city as a whole. We desperately yearn to experience life the way that you created us to live. And so we pray that you would help us to know the part that you want us to play, that you would help us to work with other churches who are passionate about that and that together we can show people how much you love them, we can show people what your best looks like and ultimately be able to experience all you've got for us. In your name we pray. Amen.